as they are gathering in the back, everyone's maybe wondering, does it say in the bulletin what our text is today? Maybe it does, I didn't look. Well, we're done with the series on Galatians. So if you are wondering, the next sermon will be from the book of, drumroll, Psalms. We're going to finish the summer looking at the book of Psalms. And I've very, very creatively titled this sermon series, Summer Psalms. So I broke the bank of creativity when I came up with that one. I actually just stole it from like three other churches. The church I came from in Minnesota two years ago had a Summer Psalms series. I thought, oh, that's... A sort of creative name. <laughs> I'll steal it. <laughs> and so we're doing a series called Summer Psalms. And the purpose of that is the Psalms are a great place to land. It's obviously the Word of God, but it also allows us to drop in individually into individual Psalms. It's unique among the other books of the Bible in that each chapter in the book of Psalms really serves as a standalone. They're obviously connected in some ways contextually, but different from the book of Galatians, where if you, you just drop into chapter 3 of Galatians, you've got you to do some work to kind of make sense of the context, right? Well, that's not really the way the book of Psalms is structured, and that really works well in the summer when folks have vacations and they're visiting family and those sorts of things. It, it allows us to do a series that helps people to kind of make sense of where they're at on just a given Sunday. So we're going to be looking at the book of Psalms and working our way through just the variety of topics that present themselves in this book. Now, don't commit me to this or quote me on it, but I've even considered that each summer we would do a series on Psalms. So maybe to channel my inner John Calvin that we would actually preach all the way through 150 Psalms. Now, that would take us a while. And we're not going to work sequentially through the, Psalm, through the Psalms, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and that way. We're going to kind of jump in here and there and, and hit a variety of topics. But maybe there's a possibility that we might commit ourselves each summer to returning here. So... We'll, we'll see how that goes. If, if you've got serious opinions on that, let me know. Maybe I'll listen to them. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, the book of Psalms is a collection of ancient, ancient Hebrew poetry. So it's, it's poems, right? But they're not just poems. These are things that were meant to be sung. And you're probably familiar with this. The book of Psalms is actually the hymn book of ancient Israel. So they're not sermons, right? It's not like the book of Hebrews, which is a sermon probably. They're not systematic theologies. You know, these aren't carefully subpointed doctrinal arguments like you'll encounter in a lot of the epistles where there's a very clear structure and argument that the author is going about making. But that doesn't mean these aren't theological. It doesn't mean that the Psalms aren't also filled with doctrine. But it does mean that the form of truth, does that make sense? The form of truth, the genre of truth, if you want to use the really fancy word, is artistic. It's meant to be beautiful, and it's filled with imagery. And that beauty and that imagery is meant to stir the heart. It stirred the heart of the ancient Israelites to worship God. And these psalms continue to stir the heart towards worship today. The psalms, when we look at these chapters and consider these messages, think of this. We're considering something that has been at the center of worship for God's people for thousands of years. That's a pretty remarkable thing. We have unique and powerful opportunity to join with the past and present communion of saints in the worship of the true and living God from the church's first hymn book. So I'm excited for the weeks ahead. I'm excited for the way that we're going to close out the summer. Psalms is one of the most beloved books in the Bible. You, you just poll folks, what's your favorite book of the Bible? 
Not everyone's going to say Psalms, but a lot of people will say Psalms. And even if somebody doesn't have Psalms at the top of their list, chances are it's in their top five. Why is that? Why do people love the book of Psalms? I think it's partially because of the simple reason that Psalms show us how the eternal covenant God makes contact with every part of our lives. Here's, here's just this massive God of Scripture, this eternal, omnipotent figure. And, and sometimes you read the Old Testament, and, and if you're not careful or you don't know how to do it, it can sometimes seem that it's tough to make sense of how he connects into everyday life. It's there in every part of Scripture. But in Psalms, it's especially clear. We see all the places that God touches our lives. So from our greatest joys, from those mountaintop experiences, to our deepest sorrows, to the valleys. From the shadow of death, to the knitting together of life. There's a psalm for every circumstance and every situation in life. Now these poems are filled as well with awesome displays of emotions and also vulnerability. They sugarcoat nothing, right? You read the Psalms and you read people at their most tender, raw, exposed, and frail moments. Sometimes they are incredibly joyful. You ever had those moments where you're alone by yourself? Maybe you're not like me. I, I would walk around the college where I, where I went and I'd actually take a hymnal out into the woods. There was all these acres of woods at night. And sometimes I would just go out in the woods with my hymnal and I would sing. And there's a way that I would sing out in the woods with my hymnal because nobody else was around. And it was just open and free and uninhibited. We see that kind of stuff in the Psalms. And we also see people in despair. We also see people with their hearts torn open before God, asking Him the most tender, heartfelt questions possible. And all of those emotions and all of those experiences that we see in Psalms are inspired by God, which means they're all appropriate. There's nothing wrong with any of those emotions. And the Psalms show us how to process those. So the Psalms are poems filled with awesome displays of emotions and vulnerability. And we sense intuitively because of that the powerful communion with God that's to be felt in these 150 poems in this book. But they don't just exude emotion. They shape emotion. The Psalms don't just show us emotion they show us how emotion should be shaped. They show us how the character of God and his actions and history should guide our feelings. We'll see firsthand how ancient Israelites, from David to Moses to the mysterious sons of Korah, preached the gospel to the extent that it was revealed to them at that time, how they preached the gospel to themselves. So, if that doesn't whet your appetite for the weeks to come, Turn to the person next to you and have them check your pulse. There's something wrong. There is a treasure of truth, understanding, love, and revelation about God and how he relates to us to be found in these books. So with that in mind, we're going to turn to the book of Psalms. Hopefully you've already opened it. And if you've opened it, maybe you're already in the right spot at the beginning in Psalm 1.
a logical place to start. I almost thought of singing that little sound of music thing. I won't give you that. <laughs> that was one of those things that came into the head that I'm pretty sure wasn't the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Book one of Psalms. Psalm one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you bow your heads? Lord, we are turning our hearts and our minds to ancient truth. All your truth in your word is eternal truth, Lord. But here in Psalms we see ancient poetic truth that stirred the worship of your people and still stirs the worship of your people. Lord, each of these each of these poems, each of these works, each of these chapters, Lord, is meant to help us worship you in a particular way in connection to a particular truth of your character. And so this morning, Lord, I ask that you would help us to see the particular truths that Psalm 1 shows us about you and the particular kind of worship that it is meant to stir up in our souls. And I pray also for this whole series, Lord, that you would help us to see that we would be able to join our hearts, our souls, and our minds with the ancient communion of the saints, worshiping from your hymn book. We want to commune with you in these pages, God. We want to be vulnerable. We want to be encouraged. We want to be changed. So I ask that you would come now and do all of those things in our presence this morning to the preaching of your word. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, Psalms, if you're not familiar, is a part of the Bible that we call wisdom literature. So along with books like Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Psalms is meant to lay out for us guidance on how to live, and specifically how to live wisely. So don't be a fool, but be wise. That's what wisdom literature is about. And the Psalms themselves were written over the course of hundreds of years. So it's different from other books. Other books have a very specific location in the history of Israel or in the history of the church, right? One author writing to a very specific location, and it allows us to really craft what's, what's the authorial intent, what's the author's original meaning to that original audience and glean meaning from it. Well, some Psalms have, have prescripts that tell us this is a Psalm of David in this context, which helps us. In general, the Psalms were written over hundreds of years, and so they have this, this massive scope that they cover. And the order of the Psalms is very intentional. Hence why we're starting with Psalm 1 this morning. Now, Psalm 1 is a didactic psalm, which is just a way of saying that Psalm 1 is meant to teach us. Now, 
all the Psalms are meant to teach us, obviously. But Psalm 1 has a specific flavor to it that is intentionally meant to instruct. Specifically, it serves as an invitation to examine what does wise, godly, healthy living look like. The writer has one explicit goal, to show us the way of blessing and to warn us of the destruction of the wicked. So I want us to consider basically this this point this morning. The goal is to consider the way of the righteous. We're going to look at the way of the righteous and consider the ways that the author of this psalm shows us the way that the righteous live. Does that make sense? So the way of the righteous is the theme of Psalm 1. And it's setting the course for all the psalms that will follow. And the first thing that the psalm shows us is the way of the righteous leads to blessing. In verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The opening psalm, the first words of all the psalms that will follow, begin with the phrase, Blessed is the man. It's setting the tone for us. Each poetic contribution is meant to help us understand individually as well as communally how do we find blessing. But blessing is a little bit of a loaded term, right? There's a lot that comes with this word blessing and it gets abused and ripped out of context a lot in our day and age. The Psalms and Scripture are constantly referring to blessing. So it makes sense that people talk about blessing a lot because the Word of God talks about blessing a lot. It talks about it is good to be blessed. You want to be in the category of the blessed. But what does it mean by that? Well, when some Christians refer to blessing, they don't always use the word biblically, which then gets confusing, right? Here's what I mean. Some will use the word blessing and they refer to emotional, material, and physical good fortune, and nothing else. So in this instance, I'm blessed if I'm happy. I'm blessed if I'm making money. I'm blessed if I'm healthy. And by contrast, if you're heartbroken, or unemployed, or sick, you're not blessed. That's not biblical. When we look at all of these things and we consider the thing and the topic of blessing, our understanding and definition of blessing shouldn't implicitly call into question the goodness of God. And if we limit the definition of blessing to only material receiving of things that we want, when we don't receive the things that we want, it will implicitly lead us then to question if God is good, if God is for us, if God is near to us. That's not what blessing means in this context. Now, Earlier this week, if you're not aware, this summer the Olympics are going to happen. And so the Olympic swim trials have been on TV, the gymnastics trials have been on, and the track and field trials have been on. I enjoy all of them, but I love track and field. I just super, I'm super drawn to track and field. I love watching it. I, my dad starts track meets, so we'll go up to the Drake relays when I was a kid and watch these just superior athletes run. I'll never forget in 1997, going and watching Michael Johnson run the 200 meters at Drake the year after the Atlanta Games. And it was the most incredible display of athleticism I've ever seen. So I love track and field. Well, I'm watching the track and field qualifier. And so here are the greatest athletes in the world. And the U.S. track and field qualifier is really 
a collection of the greatest athletes in the world. It's tougher to make the Olympic Games as a U.S. athlete than it is to win in some instances. Well, I'm watching, and after one of the races, the athlete wins. You know, he's huffing and puffing, and, and the announcer comes up to interview him, and it's just unique in track and field because they always want that interview right after they finish. And it's like, dude, the guy just ran a quarter mile in 44 seconds. Like, give him a second to breathe. His butt is aching right now. And so they stick the mic in front of him, and the athlete, you know, they ask the kind of perfunctory expected questions, and he immediately goes to, well, you know, I worked hard. I knew, I knew if I worked hard that God was going to bless me. And so, so this is just great. You know, it, it's a wonderful feeling. I had faith. I, I knew I want to give glory to God. I knew if I worked hard and I, I put in the time, He was going to bless me. And so I put my mind to it. And, you know, now I've won. This feels great. And so you know, I want to praise God and glory to God. That's saying something about the definition of what it means to be blessed. I don't know that guy. Maybe there's more to his theology of blessing. But there's an implication there. Only the winner is blessed. The rest of those losers, not very blessed. And the other implication is that God should only get glory because the blessing of victory occurred. The sense of blessing in Psalm 1 goes much deeper. Blessing is directly connected with God's glory. The blessed are those who live for and in accord to God's glory. It's not about the circumstances and what's happening in their life. It's the fact that they're living their lives oriented to God's glory. God's blessing is not deserved. The psalmist is not saying, you're blessed because you're getting something you deserve to have. God's blessing is rewarded as a gift. Even more, to biblically talk about blessing, you also need to talk about curse. Those two words, blessing and curse, are constantly paired together in Scripture. Now, we don't see the word curse in our text, but the implications of curse are all over it. Now, those two terms are constantly juxtaposed because as we see in Psalm 1, God's blessing can have immediately identifiable benefits. Righteous living, doing the right thing, doing holy things, pursuing the things of God, it has benefits. Sinful living has detriments, right? But God's blessing always carries eternal benefit. The godly both experience and anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises. That's what the psalmist is calling our attention to. That's what blessing is all about. The blessed walk in the way of understanding. As Proverbs 9.6 puts it, leave your simple ways, don't be a fool, and live and walk in the way of insight. So the way of the righteous leads to blessing. Maybe in this life, maybe that can happen, Doing the right and righteous things has a benefit of its own, but always, eternally. The way of blessing also avoids the wicked. That's the next thing the Psalter and the Psalmist calls our attention to. The way of insight or blessing avoids the company of the wicked. The righteous avoid the counsel and the advice of the wicked. They don't walk, it says. They don't stand, it says. They don't sit with the sinner or the scoffer or the mocker or the evil. 
The godly reject the lifestyle of the ungodly. And this walking, standing, sitting, I think it implies a progression. I think it's showing you that there's a walking that's more peripheral. You're sort of with the wrong crowd, but you're maybe not in the wrong crowd. Then there's standing. Now you're kind of at the center. And then there's sitting. That's really a making your home among the mockers. The godly, I think it's showing, this author here is showing us, a person doesn't go from, from choir boy to atheist, from choir boy to serial adulterer in one leap, in one step. They slowly and almost imperceptibly push the envelope. And Satan tempts shrewdly, almost by imperceptible degrees. Think back to two guys I knew in high school, both very similar, in a lot of the same sports together, actually friends together. One of them was tempted to spend time with the wrong crowd in high school, and the other one, while they had many of the same friends and did a lot of the same activities together, was really just a golden boy. I mean, if you had asked the people in the community, the one, maybe a black sheep, the other one, well, could do no wrong, right? Well, when they left for college, the one who was trending towards being a black sheep saw the error of those ways. And in a conversation with him, he specifically told me, when he was thinking of the college decision and and what he was going to do, that he chose his college specifically because he knew. He had two colleges he had set up as the top two schools. And he knew that school one was a school filled with fools. It was known as a party school. It's not like there's no one godly there, but in general, it was filled with the wicked. And school two had a reputation for being filled with the righteous. Not that everyone was righteous, not that it's some perfect, impeccable place, but he knew. At that point, his life was at a crossroads. He knew the truth of Psalm 1. If he went to the first school, he would go fully down that path. And he hoped that if he went to the second, it would change. The other golden boy had the same options. This is the one that everyone assumed was just doing everything right. He went to a school in a place filled with fools. And four years later, they were on drastically divergent paths. Two very similar young men at the age of 18. One would have appeared to be the wrong element. The other was your all-American kid. And four years later, the all-American kid, because of the crowd he kept and the place he went, was in a dark place. And that black sheep because of the decision not to associate with the wicked, was knowing communion and relationship with Christ that he had wanted when he made that decision. The wicked are utterly unlike the righteous, and the comparison is sharp and it's sudden. In verse 4, the author writes, the wicked are not so. So in relationship to what he will say about the righteous, the wicked aren't like this, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the wicked are not so, as the ESV puts it. That really kind of mutes the contrast. Literally, it says, not so the wicked. So, the first three verses are describing the righteous person. He avoids the wicked. He's a blessed person. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, right? 
And literally, what the Hebrew says when it goes to verse 4, not so the wicked. It's this stark contrast that jumps off the page of you. It's meant to show you there is an inherent difference between these two groups. Unlike the always green, enduring, and fruitful tree that represents the righteous man, the wicked are like chaff. Now, what's chaff? Some of you are maybe familiar with the word. Some of you maybe actually know what it is. Well, chaff is really the worthless part of the harvest. It's the part of the stem and husk that after the grain has been removed is what's left over. It has no value to it. When you'd get done with the threshing floor in ancient Israel, you'd remove all, all the seed, all that you wanted to gather from the harvest. And the chaff is the material that's left on the floor. And so when the wind comes, it's got so little substance to it that the wind just sweeps it away. That's what the wicked are like. Here's the point. During this righteous life, during this life, the righteous and the wicked exist together. It's like grain in the field. They're not always distinguished. They're in the same context that they grow together. But in the end, in other words, at the harvest, the differences between righteous and wicked are starkly shown. The wicked have no root. They have no lasting fruit. They have no enduring leaf. And as the author says, the way of the wicked is to perish. And the blessed man avoids this corrupting company at all costs. You do whatever you can to surround yourself with the righteous and not the wicked. Now, real brief aside here. Jesus doesn't look like this in some ways, does he? You read the Gospels, and Jesus is around the quote-unquote wicked a lot. Well, I think it says a couple things. First, it says, not all that glitters is gold, right? There are some who might appear on the surface to be very righteous. And to those, Jesus says, at times, you, my friend, are a whitewashed tomb. You are actually wicked at your core. So don't judge a book by its cover is the first portion of that. The second thing is just to say, the psalmist isn't saying here that the righteous person has zero interaction with those who are ungodly and perishing. And we see that because Jesus perfectly lives out this psalm, right? And Jesus is consistently around those who would be considered wicked and ungodly. The point being is this. There's a way of intentionally being around those who are ungodly and are perishing, like Jesus was, that is very purposeful. It's not judgmental and critical and harsh, right? When Jesus is around these individuals, they have a sense of his graciousness and his kindness and his love. He never lowers the bar of holiness, but they sense that he cares for them. But he's with them purposefully. He's with them to share the news of the gospel, to share the arrival of the kingdom of God in his person. So the righteous person at times may be around the unrighteous and around the wicked, but it is never to toy with that. It's purposefully to graciously point the way to Jesus. And there's a distinction there. That's important because the implication of this entire text is the final judgment. Foolish company corrupts and their disdain for, the God, for God's word leaves the wicked with no lasting fruit. And at the judgment it says, they cannot stand. The ungodly don't sit 
in the congregation of the righteous. The entire point is that this context is meant to remind us eternity interprets the present. Eternity interprets the present. What will happen then when Christ returns will interpret what is happening now. So today, the wicked might prosper, right? We see that. The wicked do prosper. The manipulative and deceitful advance and they flourish. Selfish people get their ways and take advantage of others. And they seem to be doing well. And wise people look beyond fleeting pleasures at times seem like they struggle. But you have to consider and examine, as verse 6 does, the ultimate trajectory of life. And then live accordingly. The righteous discern lifestyles. And they avoid all those that lead to destruction. So that's one of the things that the way of the righteous does. The way of the righteous leads to blessing. The way of the righteous avoids the wicked. Next thing the text shows us, the way of the righteous delights in the law. The way of the righteous delights in the law. Blessing comes to those who delight in God's word. Read verse 2. But his, the righteous person, the blessed man, in contrast to hanging out with the bad crowd, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Now, Psalm 1 is what's classified as a Torah psalm. Now, the word Torah, if you're not familiar, is literally the word for law in Hebrew. And specifically, it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Narrowly, Torah gets translated law a lot of times in the Old Testament. It gets translated law here, and and we're missing, I think, the richness of the term. Because there's a broader sense that Torah speaks to. Torah isn't just command. The word Torah in Hebrew more broadly means instruction. And that's what Psalm 1 is. It's a psalm that celebrates Torah. Not just command, though. It celebrates instruction. It speaks to all of God's Word. Specifically, all that God has to say about instructing His people to live rightly. Psalm 1 doesn't just set the tone for psalms celebrating the word of God. You know, there's lots of psalms. You, you run into them, like Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Those are famous psalms, right? And they celebrate Torah. They celebrate God's instruction. They celebrate God's word. Well, Psalm 1 isn't just showing us that the psalms celebrate the word of God. It's establishing that the psalms themselves are Torah. Not Pentateuch, first five books of the Old Testament, but instruction. They are compelling and beautiful example that the best poetry and the best art is always instructive. Aesthetics matter. No one wants to sing ugly, boring, dissonant songs in worship, right? But beauty shouldn't be at odds with truth either. The Psalms are as true as they are artistic, and they underscore for the church that we should sing beautiful songs but that part of the beauty of our songs must also be their truthfulness. The beauty of the gospel should be expressed in the beauty of the songs that celebrate the gospel. That's what Psalm 1 is showing us. In the garden, God walks with Adam and Eve face to face. They have uninterrupted communion. 
they're free of inhibition before God. There's this deeply personal sense of intimacy. They walk with God in the garden in the coolness of the day. They communicated and they received direct instruction from God himself. Well, the fall shatters that utopia, right? The fall brings discord and separation from God for our own good because he's holy and we're now marred and sinful. Well, Psalms is written to help us regain contact with God. Psalms, like all of Scripture, but in a unique way, is written so we would understand God. And because it's worshipful, it's meant to show us how we regain communication and connection in terms of communion. How we would deeply and personally worship God in a way similar to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's meant to introduce us and show us not a clarion call to legalism and self-righteousness. You, you see law and you could think that, right? It's meant to be an invitation to explore and to relish the instruction of God and the joy of living according to the revelation of his reign and his ordering of the world. So the righteous delight in the law of God. The godly don't just know God's words. They cherish them. That's to say, they live by them. God's revelation is the thing that makes the righteous person most happy. Wise people find real, lasting pleasure in the pages of this book. They find joy here. Their soul is satisfied here. In fact, the objectivity of God's revelation for the wise person is something that turns and channels and orients their emotions. Does that make sense? The truth of the word of God helps the wise person to know and understand how they should guide their emotions in light of it. And it's not the other way around. Their feelings don't lead the word of God. It's more than just delight in the sense of enjoyment. For the believers, it's their chief desire. The biblical sense of delight here goes far beyond the word of, far beyond just a desire for the word of God. Does that make sense? Like it's not just they delight in the word of God, so they desire the word of God because it makes me feel good. Like there, there are certain psalms that I've got lots of underlines under because I want to read them and it stirs me and it makes me feel a certain way about God. There are certain scriptures I want to read because. It draws out an emotion from me. Well, the delight that he's talking about includes those things. Those are many good things, but it's talking about something more than that. It's talking about the object of delight itself being desirable, not primarily because it gives us warm fuzzies. Oh, I love this psalm because it just always brings a tear to my eye. But that's not what he's writing about here. I'm sure you have those psalms that do that for you. You can tell me about them later. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that the object of the light is desirable because the object itself is intrinsically desirable, not because there's feelings you get from it. It is God's word. It testifies to God's person. It reveals who he is, who we are, and how we get back to him. How we get back to the way things were in the garden. It's a delight because in God's word, for those who see it truly, God himself is found. So the righteous delight in it. In fact, the author says, they meditate on it. Now, 
That's another loaded term in our culture today. What does meditate? If somebody's meditating on the Word of God, if you come in and, and Dave is meditating on the Word of God, are you going to find him cross-legged with his hands at home? What are you doing, Dave? I'm meditating. I've never seen Dave do that. And Dave is committed to meditating on the Word of God. That we've got, we've got a misconception of meditation, and it spills over into the church. There are spiritual centers, like Christian spiritual centers, places for the spiritual disciplines, quote-unquote, that have really wacky things that they have taken as this meditation principle and used as a jumping-off point. You can go to these places, and they'll have what they call prayer labyrinths. Ooh, that sounds spiritual, doesn't it? And it's this sort of maze that you don't really get lost in. You can see your way through the maze, but you're meant to walk the maze. And it's a spiritual discipline because you're walking the maze, right? Don't you feel more holy just thinking about that? There's people that do that, 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 that meditate. So that they come and there's even like, I was in a class once, no lie, where they, they, they passed around this little handheld labyrinth that you were supposed to take a pen and meditate. So you take the pen and you meditate and you just trace the labyrinth with the pen. And that was meditation and spiritual discipline. When you got done, you were supposed to look up and say, wow, I know Jesus a lot more. You know, I wasn't sure I was going to. I got to that one dead end and I thought, is this going to work? And then I found the right way and I got to the center and I was like, Jesus! No, that's not what the text is talking about. This new age emptying of the mind. That's not biblical meditation. The word meditate literally means, literally, the Hebrew means to utter and murmur. It's actually an onomatopoeia, you know, those words that sound like what they're implying? That's what the Hebrew word sounds like. It's muttering, murmuring. That's what meditating is. It's a constant calling to mind of truth. It's repeating and reading and relishing God's words. The sense of meditating day and night at least should highlight that we should be intentional to set aside times to carefully ingest God's word, right? To mull over them. To cry out for the Spirit to drive those truths deep into our souls. But day and night is talking about much more than just morning and evening devotions. It's, it's giving a sense of a person who has so stored up the truths of God's word in their heart that they can draw upon them at any time. There's been such a delight in the instruction of God that it's been memorized. It's been so cherished that time and effort was given to keeping it and hiding it and having it near. It's speaking to memorization, to the consistent calling to mind the treasure of God's word throughout the day. Now, think about delighting in words, cherishing words, being captured by words. You ever read a book that's done that? I have. My wife would probably testify that I happens all too often. <laughs> Two in the morning, still reading the book. Matt, come to bed. You need to get sleep. Oh, but I can't. I can't read the book. I'm at such a good point. When I first read Lord of the Rings, I, I literally quit work for the summer. It was about, it was about five, six days away from two days starting for football. And I had made a sufficient amount of money, I had decided. And I quit work so I could spend five days reading Lord of the Rings. Because I just went after it. I cherished it. I devoured it. I could not put that book down. 
It was, you know, should I eat or should I read? And for me, not eating to read is a big deal. <laughs> That's how we should treat God's Word. I had an opportunity working a job after I graduated, before I started seminary, where there was just a lot of activities I had to do during the day. And I wasn't sitting at a desk. I was out moving around. And I thought, how do I have God's Word with me? This was before iPhones or anything cool like that. So I just had a very thin Bible that I would stick in the back of my pocket. And I was intentional. Whenever I could get a second, because it was in my pocket, I could pull it out. And I could take five minutes to read a psalm. If I had ten minutes, I could sit down and read a short book of the New Testament. But there was a desire there to read and to cherish and to meditate and to drive the truths of Scripture into my heart. The righteous person walks that way. So we have fighter verses, right? Familiar with our fighter verses? Just something we're ripping off from desiring God. They did all the work for us. But it sets out passages of Scripture, truths of the Word of God, instruction that we're meant to delight in and memorize and store up. I encourage you, if you've never done it before, memorize this psalm. My parents had my brother and myself and all of our cousins do that when we were young. We did it to honor my grandparents and we stood up in front of them, you know, all the kids, you know, like we're anywhere from four to ten and we recited Psalm 1 for them. But there was an implication there of teaching us intentionally, let's memorize Psalm 1 because you know what Psalm 1 is going to teach them when they memorize it? That there's value in this thing they're memorizing. That they should memorize other things. They should delight in it. Finally, the way of the righteous flourishes. The way of the righteous flourishes. In verse 3 it says, He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now, verse 3 is not some simplistic pie-in-the-sky theology. That for Christians, everything's just gravy. Everything's just going wonderful all the time. If you're a Christian, you're righteous. And that means everything you do is going to go wonderfully well. So if you read your Bible in the morning, you will get an A on the test in the afternoon. And you go to the doctor, your cholesterol will get lowered. That's not what he's saying. The Psalms are some of the most realistic, heart-wrenching descriptions in Scripture. At times, people anguishing because the wicked are prospering. My enemies, my unrighteous enemies, are doing well and they're lording it over me. So what's the author saying? He's acknowledging the hardships of life all over the passage. Have you seen it yet? At first glance, it seems like there's this really pretty image of this tree, right? Oh, it's just a tree flourishing by a stream. It's like something off a postcard. You look closer. He says, it's a tree whose leaf does not wither. In other words, this is a tree that's known drought. It's known heat. It's known hardship. The righteous is the one who withstands the heat and the hardships of life. You think of the heat wave we're having right now, right? Things wither in heat. Things that don't have connection to water, when it gets hot, when it gets difficult, they will wither. It will expose a lack of health 
Only healthy trees and healthy plants and flowers will flourish when it gets hot. When it's 103 degrees and it's 85% humidity, if you're not healthy, you're toast. Or you've got to go inside of the air conditioning really fast. People that say heat and difficulty isn't what happens to the blessed and the godly have it wrong. Heat comes to everyone. That's what it means to live in a fallen world. You're not living in some parallel universe if you're blessed. And it's like, you know, all these other suckers, they're living in the fallen world, you know, where Adam and Eve sinned and fell and there's like all this messed up stuff and there's rebellion against God. But because I'm blessed, I live in this parallel reality. Like I look over at the Milky Way galaxy and think, stink to be there, but I'm over here where everything goes well. No. Difficulty happens. Heat comes to everyone. What the heat serves to do is to refine and prove who the godly are. Only those planted, only those fruitful, only those enduring during the harshness are truly righteous. The righteous man is planted, is planted. It's passive. The righteous man is being planted. The good gardener is planting him by streams of fresh water. And the stream makes all the difference. Consider this in Jeremiah 17.5, a parallel passage. Thus says the Lord, thus says the covenant God, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. He's like the chaff that the wind drives away. This will sound familiar. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Jeremiah connects the dots for us. The righteous don't flourish because they are wiser, or because they are stronger, or because they are holier than the wicked. Catch that? Cursed, Jeremiah says, is the man who trusts in himself. Cursed is the person who thinks he's righteous because he's superior to others and makes chaff of human flesh his strength. No life comes from this. But blessed is the one like a tree planted by water. Planted by someone else by water that sends out its roots to the stream. Why? Because he trusts in the Lord. Because his trust is the Lord. When the heat comes, it doesn't affect the righteous. Not because they're righteous, but because their roots go to the source of life. The connection to God's word is obvious. What keeps the godly rooted is the word. What keeps them fruitful in the harshest conditions is the fact that they draw sustenance from the word, from the source of life. They yield fruit in season. That's not saying they always have fruit. That's saying that in the season that's appropriate, they yield fruit. That doesn't mean that every day is great. It means that in the midst of the season waiting for the harvest, 
there are some hard days. There's some days of really hard rain. There's some beautiful days. There's a variety in this life. But when the season has reached its fullness, the righteous will share in the harvest of the promises of God. In the instruction of the Lord, His Word, the delight of His people, leads broken people to one place. His promises all have one source. The streams of living water all come from Jesus. The path that you delight is found exclusively through devotion to God's Word because God's Word draws our attention exclusively to Jesus. The path to true delight is found exclusively through devotion to God's Word. That's what the righteous do because they know that God's Word draws our attention exclusively to the source of life, the streams of living water, the bread of life, where eternal life is found, Jesus Christ. Our hope is not ultimately that we can live up to the standard of righteousness laid out in Psalm 1. Oh, you missed meditation on Tuesday? Sorry. You're not blessed anymore. You're not righteous anymore, right? There's an implication there. There's a high standard set. Listen to what Jeremiah says in the next verses of that passage I just quoted. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That should be a little bit scary. The Lord knows your heart, your heart which is deceitful above all else. Who perfectly avoids the wicked when the wickedness is found in your own heart? Psalm 103.3 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? The hope of Psalm 1 is that the blessed man the man who walks in the way of righteousness is none other than Jesus. But in our imperfect ways, if we delight in the law and we pursue life through God's word, we will end time and again at the source of life. We will end with Jesus Christ. And on the last day, the congregation of the righteous, that verse 6 refers to, will not be the congregation of the most pious. It will be the congregation of the most forgiven. They will stand with hope in the judgment and in the assembly of the saints because they are wrapped in the righteousness of the blessed man, Jesus Christ. Because they saw in this life the weakness of their own flesh, the wickedness of their own hearts, and in light of this, they delighted and cherished and turned again and again and again to the streams of living water in the word that led to Jesus. Would you bow your heads?